Hello everybody and a very warm welcome to the latest episode of Final Community Podcast. What you're about to hear is part two of Ask a Business Insider, featuring Andreas Koch, Record Pressing Manager, and myself, Nadine from Swordesco. Stay tuned for other exciting episodes on the Vinyl Community Podcast, and we sincerely hope you enjoy our latest episode. All right, and we are live. Welcome Hi. back, Andreas. Hello. Once again, thank you very much that you took the time to do this again. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Because <laughs> it's I, a pleasure. That's, that's great. Because I, I want to um, point out um, that Andreas is not getting the questions from, from me before we start. So everything he's answering, he's doing absolutely spontaneously. And um, <laughs> that, you know, after the question from last time, there were many questions. You did a fantastic job, honestly. Everybody loved it. Okay. Happy to so, hear that. Let's see what comes in today. <laughs> yeah. So um, maybe for those uh, who didn't see the stream last time, maybe you wanted to do a little introduction. Who are you? Yeah, my, na my name is Andreas Kohl. I work for uh, what we in the business call a vinyl broker or a manufacturing broker. We don't do only vinyl. We also do CDs and packagings and uh, stuff. Um, and I'm working um, in uh, the European operations department. Actually, I'm running the European operations department. The broker is called Key Production and they're based in the UK, in London, Brighton and Sheffield. And uh, we're currently kind of expanding into Europe. I'm uh, basically representing the European office and what we do is we Uh, combine efforts um, of independent, mostly independent labels, but also bigger major labels and manufacture vinyl CDs for them. Uh, we work together with a number of uh, pressing plants and we um, just get orders in from, from these partners and then uh, place the manufacturing orders with, um, yeah, with uh, certain pressing plants. So we're basically um, kind of a service company um, providing all service connected to manufacturing data and media carriers. Thank you so much. So, uh, like I said, I got a bunch of questions. Some are beginner questions. Some questions are like they're very long, so I have to, to read them. Um, <laughs> So let's start with the easy question. So I have a soft spot for these kind of records because I somehow grown up on this record. Uh, they look great on walls. Um, so let's let's discuss picture this. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, this one is from 1979, and picture discs were known, at least back in the day, for not having the best uh, sound quality. So it's not really an audiophile. Uh, uh, thing um, and uh, for record store day I think this year uh, some some major band I think the cure or someone uh, is releasing a record also on a picture disc so the question is um, did the picture disc processing improved is it now sounding as equal as a vinyl uh, record on, on black vinyl as an ordinary uh, record what's what's your opinion about that um, first, I have to say it didn't improve and it never will because the technology is completely different to uh, what a standard record is. 
Um, basically, a standard record is um, contains of uh, a compound made of po polyvinyl chloride by 80% and a roughly 19% polyvinyl acetate (PVAC) um, that has a certain viscosity and um, floats in a certain way um, inside a pressing machine and creates uh, a surface that has sports relatively low noise and has been te tested and established for over 60 years. A picture disc um, is not being pressed on vinyl, as we say. Um, it is being pressed on a foil. So what you basically have, well, hold on a second, I'll be back in a minute. One minute, 37 seconds later. This is a record before it be before it becomes a record so basically you have a compound that is some kind some kind of granulate it looks like rice but it's black or colored and it goes into an extruder where it gets heated up to about like 130 to 160 degrees and that kind of like mangled through and then there is some kind of sausage coming out of a machine and from the sausage parts are being cut off and they look like this and this goes into a pressing machine and then there's a label for one side and the label for the other side both go on top of this cloth and then the machine closes with 130 to 160 degrees and 100 tons pressure and this becomes almost liquid and floats to the outside of the machine and what comes out is a, uh, of it is a record with a picture disc it's different you have this cloth as well and you also have the labels. They're just not as small as we know. They're bigger. They have, they're like LP size. And on top of the labels goes a foil. And it looks pretty much, or is pretty much exactly the same what you imagine like an overhead uh, projector foil that you can ride on. It's heat resistant and it goes on top and on the bottom and then the record gets pressed. So the sound information is technically not on vinyl, it's on the foil. And um, if you think about it and you just imagine like the viscosity and the, the feel and the haptic of a foil is entirely different from something that becomes almost liquid. The foil doesn't become liquid, which means the grooves inside the foil are not formed as exactly and as precisely as a groove in vinyl. Um, the edges are kind of round. The groove bottom is a lot more rough than it would be on a vinyl. And the groove bottom is the biggest issue here because once it's not perfectly clean and perfectly smooth, if there's little like little bumps and little spots in there. This is being read out by the needle and by your cartridge and comes through your speakers as sound. And this is what we call surface noise. There is a surface noise in standard vinyl as well, but it's not as prominent and not as high as on a picture disc. So the quality of a picture disc will never ever be anywhere near a properly pressed record. Simple as that. All right. So Mega Cologne wrote, I think the sound from new picture discs sound not that bad than they used to sound in the 80s. They must have been improved somehow, so we can say, no, they didn't improve. Uh, technically, they didn't, um, which is brings us back to what we discussed last time about the general quality of vinyl. Mm -hmm. um, I can't really tell um, 
how much difference is in this foil that is being used it's probably uh, it's probably has probably been improved um there is constant improvement of the pressing technology itself as well back in the old days pressing machines didn't have automatic controls of temperature and pressure um this was all all manually uh, maintained with like manometers that had like little um was like little scales now this is all electronically and it is like computer controlled there is software attached to the machine who keep uh, the pressure and the temperature stable so that could indicate that the quality has improved slightly um, on this as well plus um, especially the demand for picture discs is quite high which uh, indicates that some of the pressing plants are probably not see it as a special thing like they did in the past. It's more like a regular thing and the uh, machines might be a lot better calibrated now nowadays. But um, the technology hasn't changed. The material has probably changed following restrictions, especially uh, the REACH agreement uh, inside the European Union where no cancer-inducing um, ad additives are allowed anymore. So um, I would go as far as like yes it could be but i wouldn't generalize it um it's the same thing that as with other records like each and every pressing plant can do good records and it's all a matter of quality control and if someone gets the impression picture discs nowadays are better they're probably just lucky because they've been pressed at a, at a factory that has a very very good quality control all right so my conclusion is it looks great but uh, sound wise uh, don't use it Exactly. Make the hole a bit, bit, a bit bigger and put a clockwork in and hang it on your wall. That's what you can do with a picture disc. <laughs> As you can read between the lines, I'm not a big fan of it. <laughs> All right. So what we have here from Michael, um, I learned that even Blu-ray technique improved the quality of pressing records as they use some of these very accurate technical possibilities for vinyl. Um, I would call this an urban legend because it's entirely different technologies. It's like there is there is nothing compared. The only thing that might be here and there is on the mastering side. Um, um, since we moved from fully analog mixings and masterings in the 70s to fully digital mixings and masterings, there is probably... Um, special plugins that are being tested with Blu-rays first. I'm talking about Dolby Atmos and that kind of thing that made its way into mastering music um, parallel to movie and film mastering. And there might be uh, a certain way of how dynamics are targeted in mastering as a vinyl that have been invented specifically for the 5.1 or 6 or 7.1 different materials um, and um, DVDs and Blu-rays are injection molded. Let's let's continue. There were some questions in the gallery. I marked them. So Pets Radio Vinyl Mania, I marked your question. Um, so we'll come to that later on. So next question is what you see here. I make myself big. It's obviously an Elvis record, but it's also a record you can't officially buy. It's a so-called bootleg. So, um, and you you mostly find out about bootlegs because it's written study material, uh, not for sale, promo. Some of these uh, things are written uh, on on the bootleg, 
And there was also a question about the bootlegs and the Contafy records. Like, um, I think with Led Zeppelin, this has been done very often. Um, I think it's been done with, with many uh, great fans that have been Contafys. What is the uh, legal perspective of bootlegs and Contafys? And how can we uh, imagine the production process of a bootleg or a Contafy, which is not, I think, legally allowed to do? Which is, in fact, the truth. If we're talking about counterfeits and real bootlegs, they're illegal and they fall illegal under uh, copyright laws, which are basically the same all over the world. As you can imagine, a lot of laws that are um, limited to uh, national decisions, um, like driving laws and whatnot, the copyright laws are quite agreed between all the nations on the planet and they're the same everywhere. They're, they are ratified differently, but they are the same everywhere. Um, and they are pretty clear about it. If someone is, as, the, uh, as we call it, wants to exploit the rights of an artist, the artist needs to give their permission. Um, that is the short and easy description. So if someone is exploiting the rights of an artist in a writing or in a mastering of a song, um, and they don't give their permission, then it's illegal. Both counterfeits uh, and uh, bootlegs fall under this law. Although we need to differentiate between the two, a counterfeit is pretty clearly uh, a resemblance of an existing record um, of an official release that is being pressed illegally um, and a bootleg is usually containing material that isn't being permitted to be officially released by the artist and now it gets a bit complicated because from time to time artists even authorize bootlegs of live recordings um, and shows they do um, that are released by fans as bootlegs and then later become authorized. Uh, there is even, there is an amount of bootlegs out there which are officially authorized. I'm thinking about the live bootleg series from bands like Pearl Jam who have authorized all their recordings. Sometimes it's even artists doing their own bootlegs. They record their live shows and then they put them out on tapes or on, on, on vinyl. Um, as far as manufacturing goes, um, this is this is something that is widely discussed and um, I'm being asked a lot who is pressing these these records and I'm usually completely at a loss when I have to answer this question because from all the pressing factories I know that we also we work with and which most of them are based in Europe I can rightfully say there is no real way to do it um, without supervision and not being called out uh, nowadays each and every record pressing plant um, is kind of registering with the copyright control association uh, in, in austria and all the pressing plants having set up a proper business are kind of um, registering their pressed records with them or in other words they tell them what they press and in what amounts and um there is audits every now and then by these companies who are expedited differently in the different countries. I know it from Germany, there is like quarterly audits at the pressing plant. And um, if you would do something 
illegally they would they would find out this obviously can't be generalized for for other pressing factories in the world and there might be even pressing plans somewhere in parts of the world that we don't even know about that they're still existing and this is what i think uh, are the ones responsible for illegal pressings otherwise this wouldn't exist and have quite a few few of them yeah 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 um the thing is like what we noticed and that is quite interesting over the last couple of years the amount of freshly pressed bootlegs and counterfeits decreased significantly which had something to do with most of the pressing plants uh operating under circumstances where they couldn't even fill or they they couldn't even deliver the huge demand by legal partners so there wasn't even capacity available to do something illegal um, which was the case most of the times in the 70s and 80s where pressing plants um, just were filling their capacity by whatever 70 or 80 percent and the rest of the 20 percent they did st uh, illegal stuff so they could um, sell do so-called backdoor sales or something mm. uh, this was mainly impossible in the last couple of years but one thing uh, let me just construct an example of how it is still possible. Um, a pressing plant, um, as I explained before, also in our last stream, is just a manufacturer. So basically, they get an order by a client, and then they manufacture whatever is ordered. Um, this doesn't indemnify the clients not to do something illegal. Um, usually, a pressing plant kind of trusts their customers to have a proper registration once a pressing plant is taken on a new customer it is usually checked by authorities that they are a trustworthy uh, partner there's also credit checks being made how their um how their financial situation is it is and no pressing plant would just go out and press something for somebody um there is usually a lot of business checks that come before it so it could be that you have a customer as a pressing plant who has been ordering legal pressings with you for about 10 years or something in a certain amount and all of a sudden they place an order where they don't own the rights for the pressing plants will never find out um, because they trust their client they know they have probably a, a regular setup with a copyright control association such as the game or the mcps where they do automatic licensing and then it could even be someone working at this client at a record label um placing an order for something that they don't own the rights for it is not automatically and fully checked by each and every pressing plant of course the pressing plants have licensed departments where they check um here and there for the rights also when they register there's also visual checks sometimes there is like graphics and imagery that is probably uh, falls under uh, law restrictions. Like in Germany, if someone is placing an order with a record which is a, that has an artwork that contains a swastika, then it will be filtered out by the license departments in the pressing factories, and there's no way that they're going to press it. Even though if, if they did it, they wouldn't be responsible for it, but they try to avoid the hassle coming with it if someone finds out. Because if the label placing such an order would disappear after the records have been delivered, then the next step where the authorities will ring the doorbell will be the pressing plant. So that's why they, in the first place, 
do checks, but these checks can never be as detailed as they would need to be to filter out every illegal action. So that should count as an explanation for it. Um, after hearing your explanation about pressing plans being totally overbooked, the chance that um, uh, what Ryan is writing up here is any chance some employees press a few after hours or are these plans running 24 hours a day? Most of the pressing plants, uh, or no, actually all the pressing plants I know work in shifts. Um, sometimes they have just one or two shifts per day, so they work like about 16 hours a day. I know quite a few pressing plants who run 24-7, even on Sundays and even on bank holidays. Um, the bigger pressing plants um, are being audited every now and then also for their numbers, also for other reasons, not only for, for licensing reasons. They also need to provide numbers of products that they make, like every business um, that is operating on an industrial level, on an industrial scale, need to prove towards the tax authorities how much they are actually producing, how much they're storing, what the value of their storage is, what the value of their warehouse material is, and what the value is of things they deliver and ship. That's why the bigger pressing plants all have counters on their machines uh, that are being uh, locked up and no employee has access to adjust these counters. Uh, they can be read out sometimes by special software, sometimes by just looking at it by, from, from uh, people being authorized to do it. So what can I say rightfully, the big pressing plants operating on an industrial scale would not allow to press any records, as you say, after hours. I wouldn't vouch for every smaller pressing plant to do this, but I would also be in much doubts that the smaller pressing plants would do something like this because they usually wouldn't have the operational setup to distribute such items. Um, uh, less not to talk about the uh, the amount that are needed. I mean, if someone would do, let's just construct the facts of a small pressing plant that can do whatever 2,000 to 3,000 records per day, um, if they would keep going after hours, it would be like probably 100 or 150 records, and what are you going to do with it? It's just like you need to have a proper operational setup. If someone is familiar about the distribution of bootlegs and counterfeits and how they are distributed nowadays, it is kind of, it, it, it's a bit of a gray zone own um, existing beside uh, traditional distribution structures. It's people that have globally expanded and are driving up literally in vans to pressing uh, to, to, to record stores uh, or shipping their stuff. So you need to have access to such a, an operation. And once you would invest in getting this set up as a pressing plant, you would, need, you would need to have special employees to do this. And you wouldn't be able to finance these employees because the operation is so small. So it kind of like works against each other, I would say. As I said before, I'm not saying it is entirely impossible, but I can't really, from the partners I have and that I work with, I can't imagine how they would pull it off. It's just like, I, I can't really see it happening. Well, thanks. I hope that that answered all the questions to that. So now I have quite a few questions. I need to read them because they are very long. Um, so the first question I want to ask is about compression. From my point of view, there's a great deal of confusion on the subject. One thing is to compress a digital file wave to MP3. And here, here the sound is compressed along with the file. Another thing is to compress the sound to a certain support. 
the sound of the instruments have a very large dynamic range. That's why you have to compress the sound that is adapted to a certain support. My question is, vinyl supports 67 decibel or db, oh, we can you. just stick with db. db. That makes it easier for me, thanks. So, um, CD 16-bit 90dB, 24-bit 100dB and DSDS 140dB. So, the most compressed sound medium is vinyl, question mark. So, the one where the real sound has to be eliminated the most, therefore the least real. 90dB is sufficient. Usually, speakers use 90dB. Wow, that was a question. I needed a drink for that. I tell you that. Um, to be to answer this question properly and detailed, we would do we would need to do an, a full podcast because um, I I can see where the question is coming from, but it, the the whole question about compression is not as easy as someone might think um, because we need to we need to separate or we need to see compression and uh, dynamic range uh, as a different issue uh, indeed you compress each record or e each instrument or each tone range to a certain degree it is also correct that the lowest dynamic range can be um can be filed on a record uh 67 is a theoretic number i would even go lower i would say like a standard record can or what people can hear from a record is like 40 to 45 sometimes 50 db of dynamic range what also needs to be taken into consideration what the human ear can actually separate and can hear and we're also talking about higher frequencies up to what high frequencies can a human ear um perfectly hear and what can our what what can our brain do with it this taken all into consideration we have to admit and say that everything that is digital cd um or d DVD theoretically uh, has an unlimited dynamic range, um, which means an unlimited loudness uh, up to the very top, while it is kind of restricted on a on a record. Um, I wouldn't go further into details because that would mean I would need to set up my computer to show you some waveforms and stuff uh, to properly to probably illust illustrate it. Fact is that the dynamic range between the what we call the dynamic range is the distance between the lowest volume tone to the highest volume tone on a on a record is the lowest in uh in, in in vinyl and it makes the vinyl quality on a physical level and i'm just talking on a physical level inferior to this one of the cd or a dvd or an uh, sacd um this is what has been widely discussed if you're looking for a perfect physically perfect emulation of a live sound there is no way around a cd the the vinyl would never come near to it but as we all know as vinyl lovers there are so many other things um connected to a vinyl that make 
the vinyl probably topping what we are looking for in a CD. Oh, and by the way, when the CD came on the market, that was one of the reasons why it was market, uh, marketed that way and why it was invented, because it eliminated everything like surface noise and stuff like that, perfect quietness, in uh, perfect silence in between songs. And it was, it sported a physical or technical step forward, huge step forward in, 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 in quality of, of filing sounds. This was the only reason that we wouldn't be sitting here discussing vinyl. Yeah, you, that's right. But so I got from me actually CD is better. Um on a physical level, if you if we go um if if we go strictly apply science to it, then it is like that. Or let me use another other example. If we have if we have this time, there's a bit of an explanation or comparison I always do. Imagine one thing you take a, a, a wire like a piece of metal wire and hold it between your hands and you just like kind of like stretch it and someone else is touching it and then it starts swinging what you hear is a physically perfect tone it's like there is a perfect sinus wave to it and it's probably yeah a perfect tone that thing that tone what you hear doesn't do anything to you you just hear it and you say well it's a tone. That's it. There is no emotional connection to it. Now you take the same wire and you put it on a piece of wood. Um, even better, putting it on a piece of hollow wood, like a guitar. What happens now, this wire starts swinging and it kind of like touches the wood or the waves that are created by them swinging get carried forward in the air. They reach the wood. The wood starts swinging as well. And inside the wood, you have a certain amount of waves going in different direction, depending on the fiber direction of the material. So there's a couple of waves going in one direction and they're going a bit faster than in the other direction. What happens now, the waves are kind of like in, uh, in interfering with each other and you have certain areas where the waves amplify each other and other areas where the waves kind of delete each other it's like simple acoustics we all have this in physics in the seventh or eighth grade what happens now is you from the simple tone that your wire was creating it becomes sound by waves interfering with each other. And this is the whole idea or the whole emotional connection to it. We're not talking about tone, we're talking about sound. Um, and this is exactly what happens on a record as well. While the CD perfectly resembles or emulates what has been recorded in the studio and then on again, but technically the CD itself the perfect resemblance of, of, of what has been recorded. While a record is not, um, a record is an analog uh, data carrier that itself has carry, is carrying forward waves inside the material. It puts it further on the platter of your turntable. From there, it goes into the into the chassis of your turntable it even makes a difference and it's perfectly uh scientifically proven it even makes a difference if you wear socks or if you're barefoot standing in front of your record player um that even interferes with the sound if you have your record player hanging on a wall or if it is placed on a wooden uh, cabinet or if it is on a metal table this all interferes with the sound there is uh, it swings and there is waves that are feeding back into the needle. We all know the needle in a cartridge 
is swinging while it is reading out the information from the groove. And once your whole device is starting to swing as well, there is an information that is read out by it as well. There is a resonance in the tone arm and everything. I could go on forever and explain where there is waves happening. So what now is happening, there is a lot of attached um, waves coming into your cartridge that are being read out transported to your amplifier and come out of your speakers that are not embedded in the original master. And this could be something that makes your record sounding much more warmer, or it could be something that you feel is not what should be there. And since we're discussing all these waves in an analog um, filing of, of sound, um, we're leaving a scientifically proven result. It's all subjective and we all feel differently about it. So um, that's this is just as an explanation why technically the CD is much better than uh, a record, but us subjectively might see it different. Wow, I love the explanation with the wire. <laughs> that was great. All right. How many playing hours can a record handle? That's oh yeah, I, many factors, I think. I love I love that question because I'm being asked this question like at least once a week. Um, the answer is, um, or oh, there's two answers to it. The the easy answer is you cannot tell, and the second answer to it is it depends. It really depends on the audio material, audio material embedded therein. It's dynamics. Um, it's stereo width in the uh, in the lower frequencies, um, especially in the bass frequencies. Everything below 200 hertz. Um, if there is a lot of uh, stereo information to it, then it might not even be fit for uh, a record. Um, let's put it this way: we we all know. We have a groove that has a shape roughly like this, where our needle goes through. Um, this groove contains, if we use it as a stereo groove, uh, contains information on one side of the 45 degrees angle and on the other side. Depending on how dynamic my record is, when I cut the record, my stylus is not going straight through the groove. It goes to the left and right and does this movement. And while a record is always cut at the loud B, um, the loudest part on a side of a record dict dictates this zero dB point. Um, so to give this a bit of an explanation, imagine you have a very, very quiet music piece. Let's say a piano concert that is very quiet through the whole first 20 piano like when you have you have a very quiet piece a very silent piece of piano music and then uh, after let's say 20 minutes or 15 minutes a heavy and very loud piano chords comes in that is louder than the rest of everything that is on the side then this dictates the zero point um, and this is the moment where the stylus that has been going relatively smooth into one direction all of a sudden makes this movement goes left and right so what it actually would do if you would cut it at a too loud volume would it would bend the side of the groove it would bend the, the side of the groove moving into the revolution before which is exactly 1.8 seconds this is what we call pre-echo some of you guys would know this you listen to a record and you make it really loud and you feel like oh, i'm hearing something that comes 1.8 seconds later it's exactly that thing where the groove uh, side was bent towards the basic explanation the width of the groove the inner width of the groove 
is variable. It's not always the same. And since we have one groove that goes into a spiral, the land in between groove needs to have a certain width so it doesn't get bent depending on the dynamic of the record. And that's why you can't never tell once you start cutting a record how far to the center you will go. If you have a highly compressed record that has a dynamic range of whatever 20 dB or 15 dB, then you can fit much more on one side because um, the, uh, the movement of the stylus is not that hard. And if you have a high dynamic music, like singer songwriter stuff, piano concerts and stuff, you can't fit much. Uh, like a ballpark figure is everything between 15 and 20 minutes is relatively safe because that always fits, but it could go much higher than this. I've seen records with 40 minutes on one side be could discuss about why DMM can hold more music on one side, simply because the material where we cut in is harder. So the risk of bending the land is lower, which means that the revolutions of the groove can be much more thinner or much more close to each other. And that's why you can fit more revolutions on one side, which automatically means more, um, more amount of music on one side. So bottom line is you can never tell. It needs a lot of experience to actually see this in the waveform of the material. Um, if you're not as experienced as a cutting engineer, what you usually do is some kind of like a dry cut. You just start your cutting machine, you set the, the stylus F it is if it would cut and let it move towards the center of the record, but you don't like cue it down to the records on one side or I can't. And then you start the proper cut. If I buy um, a used record, for yes. example, and I play it, how do I know that this is actually a worn out record? It has been played too many times because when I listen to it, I say, okay, the sound sounds muff, but okay, it might have been that, that thing. But it, if I would have an original mint copy from, from that area, and then I, I could compare that the sound is actually very good and I have a very worn out record. How do I know that the record is worn out? Do I see that? Do I need to hear that? Uh, usually, usually you can't see it. And um, I also think um, it, people intend to believe that the honing effects that a stylus or a, a needle does inside the groove is seriously damaging the, re the, the record over a re relatively short period of time, which is not the case. Um, the material is quite hard, and of course there are honing effects, but they are not as drastic um, as to uh, a, a, a massive degrading of the record. Um, I've seen quite a few records that have been played extensively often and the grooves were still relatively intact. I think before a record degrades into sporting a muffling sound, as you would call it, there would be other damages that are visible and audible, like crackles and scratches and everything like this, um, that will be much more prominent than uh, an actual muffling out of the sound just from playing it. If someone treats their records well and they're just being played by a perfectly calibrated or by a good calibrated record player, they could stand about like 20,000 hours of, of being played uh, without audibly degrading.
I mean, there's always, uh, if I go into it with a microscope, I can see it degrading, of course, but I wouldn't go as far and say this is audible. Thank you. So it's an everlasting, somehow it's an everlasting method to play music. That's awesome. What country... Yeah, that's, um, by the way, just let me add to this. This is one of the, the special things about vinyl. It's the only carrier of information that we have in the history of mankind that is literally eternal. Um, you, the records that we're having nowadays will, all, will still be readable in about two or three million years because it's analog. All you need, and we all know this, is like a needle and a postcard and you can read the information out. Every other technology that ha we have invented in the past years to store information, tapes, floppy disks, CDs, will not be um, able to be read out eternally because the technology to read out the information will disappear. I hope they are not trying this with original blue notes, the needle and the postcard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope so. It's a, I'm saying it's theoretically. They can do it with some newer blue note pressings because I know that some of them are really badly pressed. <laughs> so from what country should I avoid buying pressings? Um, no comment. No comment on this because uh, on, for the simple fact that you can't you can't pin down a delivered quality by by nations. This this makes absolutely no sense. Um, there is pressing plants all over the planet now, like uh, at least twenty new ones opened in the last couple of years, and um, it, there is there is no indication that. Uh, specific countries have specific approaches to quality control. I mean, come on, this would be racist in the end if we would go as far. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about how do I, you know, but uh, anyway, you, you answered that question very well. So this question from Rajiv Studios, I hope I spelled that correct. Would a warped record have an impact on how quickly the sound would degrade? Because that fits perfectly to the next question. Yeah, um, I would say like this is this is again something where we have to separate an answer um, for a technical side and for something that is audible. Technically speaking, I would say yes. But it will depend on the warping itself. We have been discussing the warped issue on the last stream that we did. And um, this has been taken into consideration by a little bit of surveys and checking by several pressing plants who found out that everything that goes up to like three, four millimeters in warping, like in a relatively smooth wave, is not affecting playability. And the tone arm and how it is stored in this uh, in this construction can easily handle this um, this warping effect. It becomes complicated if the warping is higher, and it can be can be become complicated if the warping has a has a certain shape, like kind of like a pyramid shape where the needle goes relative goes up relatively steep and then falls down on the other side. I can't prove this technically, but I would go as far um, and say once we reach a point where a record is not playable because the needle actually really jumps, that is the point where it all also would get damaged. But the honing effects by the needle inside the groove would be quite minimal, if not um, on the same level as for a flat record. This all considered the fact you have a good 
calibration on your turntable. You're not using a Crosley with a spring uh, tracking force adjustment and you're using an okay needle and everything is, and you treat your records well, um, you shouldn't be worried about a warped record being degrading faster than a standard record. All right, so the next uh, question is, does record flattening hurt or damage the grooves? Again, a question, it depends. It depends on how you do it. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this the last time, but um, a lot of people don't know um, when uh, the vinyl material itself degrades on a molecular level. And this actually happens, uh, believe it or not, at 56 degrees centigrade. This is not much. Um, if you would put a record in your open sunshine, you can reach like whatever 70 to 80 degrees core temperature in a, in a record relatively easy and relatively fast. And this is when it degrades. So uh, the molecular structure of the material literally falls apart and the record degrades. So when you start flattening your record using a machine for it or doing the old idea with like two glass platters and put it in your, in your oven at home, then you need to make painstakingly sure not to go over 50 degrees centigrade um, as an absolute maximum. I would even go lower than that. To avoid the record being exposed to a temperature where the core of the record could reach these 56 degrees. If that happens, then you can be relatively safe not to damage the groove. But of course, even at a temperature of like 25, 30 degrees, the material becomes kind of soft. And if you apply too much pressure to it, then you can also damage uh, the groove tops, which will be audible in the end. Um, so I, it's also quite tough to tell at what kind of like temperature this actually happens because it strongly depends on the shape of the groove itself. Um, how is the groove edge? How is the groove bottom? Has the record been played? How has it been polished or dehorned before that or dehorned before it? Um, was the cut even cut on, uh, done on DMM or was it a lacquer cut? Because that also defines a different shape of the groove edge. Um, so it's, it's really hard to tell. It, it really depends. But I would say like people selling these record flattening machines have been doing extensive tests about it. I would go as far and say they know what they're doing. I personally, and some people probably would like freak out if they hear it. If I have a, a, a warped record, I actually flatten it in my living room by putting it on the carpet. I have a floor heating and I'm just basically taking two uh, plexi plates and I put it under the under my carpet, between carpet and floor heating and let it stay there for a night. And the next morning they're flat and I'm, I'm quite okay with it. Uh, but I'm only doing this for like really badly warped stuff. I have quite an amount of warped records that I play as they are because, mm. well, if they play and the music is great, that's all that matters. I flattened my record on an ORB record flatten. I think they're all OBR, ORB from Japanese <laughs> company. And I had the uh, impression when a, when a record was uh, warped at the outside and I flattened it, I got some kind of wave within the middle of the record afterwards. And um, also I noticed after uh, the flattening that my, my stylus was uh, kind of moving like, like shaking. It sounded great and it, it, and it played, but I, I, I had the impression that it was 
different than before. This could be because I explained it last time how records do warp and the majority of records do warp because of a tension that gets applied coming from the labels onto the record. And this tension that comes from expansion of labels, this is ir it, it's irreversible. It's like you can't, it can't be reversed. Even if you, if you flatten the record, there still might be some tension that you just send a different way. And it kind of like blisters up at a different part of the record. And this is probably what, what, what happens when you, when you, when you say that. Another thing that could be theoretically possible is if you own a record that hasn't been warped by an expansion coming from the label, but it has been warped during the pressing, which I said, it is possible and it happens, but just not to a great extent. But it could be that a record has become warped at a pressing. If you try to flatten that, then you're of course deforming the groove because it has been pressed like this before. And this could also cause some flattering of the of the needle when it when it's being played. It, it plays fine. Uh, and I don't have the impression that I have sound-wise a difference because some people say after flattening, the record sounds different. I don't have that impression. Um, but uh, yeah, the, 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 the warp kind of disappeared and went to the rest of the record. That's what's happening most of the time. Okay. Well, if it plays, be happy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, next question, which I think is, is very difficult because it has a lot to do with personal taste. Mono versus stereo. Oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Actually, I'm currently working on kind of, it, it's almost like a thesis comparing mono cutting uh, in history and mono um, reading, mono playing. There is so many different angles to it. It's not easy to answer. It's like I'm, 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 I'm literally at 10 A4 pages and I haven't even touched the core of it. Um, you need to you need to look into it historically. You need to see when got the, when the uh, stereo micro groove got established in the late '60s. How uh, the standard width of the groove even changed, even though it's both the micro groove, like a standard micro groove in mono, is slightly wider than a stereo groove and and uh, as micro groove. Um, the way how mono cartridges and needles were built in the '60s, they are not made like this anymore because they were basically just flexible to the sides but not flexible to a vertical angle these cartridges are not existing anymore thank god they're not existing because if you would apply these to a stereo record it would destroy the record within seconds um, so what we have nowadays is like different concepts of making mono needles and mono cartridges um, what is all with, with them all is like they're flexible vertically and horizontally but sometimes have just one coil reading out the true mono information some of them have two coils that are sometimes not even in a 45 degrees angle to each other they're just side by side and then some is taken out other people use their mono switch on their um, amplifier um, you need to check into it how this is wired in your amplifier. Not each mono switch on an amplifier is wired the same. Um, some of them are just taking the left signal and spreading it out to both sides or the right signal, put it, spreading it out to both sides, which is the perfect way to do it. Uh, some of them are just creating a sum, which means 
they're taking the left side and the right side, putting them together as a sum and giving out as mono signal. Bad idea if you want to play a mono record for the simple fact you have a mono record with a mono groove, but there is still some information being read out by the needle moving horizontal uh, vertically and this information is given to your amplifier which means if you take the sum of both signals left and right there might be an information that has been read out in some kind of frequency that eliminates a recorded frequency we're been discussing this before about amplification and deleting of certain frequencies if they overlay each other so this could actually happen even when you play a mono record um i'm just giving a a tiny fraction of the details that need to be respected here. Um, when it comes to the fan side of me, mono all the way. I'm I'm just a big lover of mono recordings um, um, because they, to my opinion, they're they're creating a lot more depth to the sound, even if it sounds weird and working against the idea of stereo, who's kind of like was set or supposed to build up some kind of stage. Um, but I'd rather have my records or my music coming from the middle and being like as open as spaciousness uh, spacious as possible. For instance, the Beatles mono box is so much better sounding than the stereo version. Every Dead Moon record sounds phenomenal because it has been recorded and cut and played in mono. And I even go as far like even the speakers that I have in my house when reading out most of them are um uh uh, not even like two-way or three-way speakers, they're just one-way speakers because I like to have my sound in the middle. But that's the fan side of me. It's like, don't nail me down to it. We can discuss ages about the approach to how sound is being recreated. Um, but if you want to make sure that all the information that has been going to tape while the recording happened, then it's mono all the way because you're risking too many interferences and amplifications in the stereo recording depending on a signal way. So there you have it. All right. Question from Michael 45 RPM. True mono is complex as a topic. What's your take on today's mono releases compared to the old ones? Um, very good question. I need to give the question back and ask, what do you consider the old ones? Um, because there is a bit of like a, a cutoff in history. Um, when we talk about the old ones, are we talking about the ones that have been cut with true mono cutter hats that happened until I'd say like 1966, 1967, um, where real true mono cutter hats have been used? These are extremely tough to be read out nowadays. You need a, a, speci a specific system for it to get all the information that you want. Or are we talking about true mono recordings from the mid 60s up till now who have been cut with true mono heads, but they are actually constructed like a stereo head, a stereo cutter head. Um, this, this makes a huge difference because um, the true mono uh, cutter heads literally just put on a side movement in the groove there was they, they didn't go into into the deep it was just like a side movement while modern cutter heads are basically stereo cutter heads cutting a mono signal they also have side movements but they are flexible and they're cutting the narrow stereo micro groove the old ones when the chain when they changed the depth of the groove i hope that's correct um 
this is also a bit of it's a bit of an urban legend they didn't change the depth of the groove um there was depth restrictions active since the mid 50s um for the simple fact that like very heavy chords could damage the record and go down to the uh, could have the the ankle to the side too far so they can't can't have another revolution without bending the land in between um but that's very very detailed the actual depth of the groove did only change because the width of the groove changed. Um, and that's what I explained for, for earlier. We have a 45 degrees angle in our groove. So if I make the groove wider, then it automatically goes deeper. Um, to answer the question, um, yes, the width of the uh, groove was changed by, I think it was like eight micrometers or something. There were roughly 50 micrometers back then, and then I changed up to like, um, I know there was, they changed to 12, I forgot it, I have to look it up. Um, it, it wasn't that much. The recordings themselves um, and the information embedded in the groove is no difference uh, between the older, wider groove and the newer micro groove. It all depends what kind of equipment you use to read it out. If you use the equipment that was designed for the other one, then the record, the quality will be inferior. Or in other words, using a mono cartridge, if you could find one from the 50s, to read out a, a record that has been cut with a with a newer uh, cover head in the 60s and 70s, it will almost I can almost guarantee that it will damage the record. And if you do the other way around, if you're using a modern needle to read out one of the old cut records, then there's going to be too much movement inside the groove of the needle, and you're not going to catch all the information. But if you if you stay true to the technology that is compatible, then I wouldn't say there is no difference. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, Dan, this is an amazing stream. Thanks for doing it. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. <laughs> Andreas is doing a fantastic job. Awesome. All right. Um, we have it in certain variations. We have it as cutout. We have it as uh, drill hole. We have it as a some some cut on the bottom and uh oh once again a cut corner so um i know the back story behind it but maybe andreas may you tell us about the discounting system back in the 70s with these why do why are some records cut out why there are damage on purpose as always there <laughs> there is a very very long answer to it um it really depends cutouts have been done since the early 70s up until like the mid 90s they're not so common nowadays which has something to do with the distribution structure of records but depending on the era when the record is from the reason or or the purpose for a cutout is different um, let's go back in history and shed some light on how records are being distributed nowadays and how they've been distributed back in the days. Um, from, I'd say, like the late 60s um, um, into the early 70s, something like a proper distribution structure um, on the international markets have been established that have been, haven't been existing before. We all know the history of Sun Records, for instance, in... Um, uh, in the US, 
where just artists walked in, record something, the stuff that has been recorded has been cut and then pressed, and then you could buy it in the store that was attached to the studio. Some of the records have been shipped to radio stations where they have been played, and some of them have been directly shipped to record stores that order directly from Sun Records. That applied to other record labels as well, like whatever, Chess and whoever we know from back in the days. Um, when music became bigger and more prominent and recorded music became like a market factor and people saw like, hey, we could make money with it, like serious money, distribution structures started to establish. Um, first of all, there were in the hands of all the labels themselves. So what they basically did, they made their warehouses bigger, they pressed more records, they stored them and shipped them directly to record stores. Until I'd say like the late 70s, something like press promotion wasn't even existing. Um, there was no people doing like press work for artists. Sometimes an artist would have a manager and the manager would take like a bunch of records in a, in a tote bag with them to some concerts and hand it out to some people writing for magazines. There wasn't even so many magazines existing dedicated to music. That all started in the mid 70s, late 70s. Um, so press promotion was basically done by the artists themselves or by their managers by giving records to certain press people. That changed dramatically by the end of the 70s when independent um, distribution structures got established, which dates back to some guy called John Loder um, living in the UK who started a company called Southern Records, which were the, was the first company that uh, kind of established independent distribution structures that are not, were not attached to majors at all. Before that, you could, have be, you could be an independent artist, you could even be an independent label, but to get your records into stores, you needed to work with a major label because they had the structures, they had the warehouses, and they were the only ones having access to the record stores, unless you drive up to the record store and distribute your records by hand or sell them in front of the record stores. And this is exactly how Southern Records started driving around with the van, selling crafts seven inches in front of record stores. And this became an idea. It's like, why don't we set up a, a corporation like the majors have with a warehouse, importing stock from the US, and then distributing it to several record stores and mail orders across Europe. Each and every in the, uh, distribution structure that we have nowadays, even major label distribution structures, are based on this model nowadays. So when once the distribution structures got established, the amounts of records being shipped across the planet dramatically increased because the structures were there and they needed to be filled with content. That was the time when all these managers of the record labels or the managers of the bands couldn't do the press work on their own anymore. They hired people. It's like, I'm just going to manage this artist. I'm negotiating contracts, but you're going to be responsible for sending some of the records to the press people. And then you call them back two weeks later. Hey, do you want to do an interview? You want to write an in a review about it? Should we place an advert in your magazine to finance your structures a little bit? This is how press work is established. And all these people received original records. Now to avoid that these people bring in their records to the next store and sell them for face value, they needed to be marked somehow. They needed to be made invalid. And that was one of the reasons for uh, the cutouts, but just one. The other reason was, once the distribution structures established, as I just explained, um, something like um, uh, commission uh, sell sales structures were also established. Or in other words, there were big record stores, chains like HMV or, or other big ones 
that said, you know what, the label, we would, of this new release, we would store probably like 100 copies in our high street store and buy them from you and then sell them to punters. But what if you give us 500 and we're taking a bit of a risk, we're putting 500 in our high street stores and see how many sell. And you give us a time of, let's say, six months before we pay them. And if we don't pay them, we return them to you. And um, the distribution companies and the record label said, that's a very good idea. Let's do this. We don't need the money automatically. We just give you a little bit more and then you return what you don't sell. Um, when the returns came back, we all know records are packed in a in a sleeve. Um, some of them were damaged. Um, some of them weren't couldn't be sold anymore, but they were still in good shape. So what the distributors did, the returns that they got back, they could sell them for a lower price. And to make them invalid, they applied all this, the same cutout to each one of them, just to devalue them slightly. Here we have reason number two for cutouts. There's two more coming. I tried to make them short. The other reason is also connected to the distribution business is so-called deals that big distributors used to do with retailers. They do like 10 plus one deals, five plus one deals, two plus one deals, which means they're selling five records to a store. And they say, if you take five of these, then you get one for free. Now they need to avoid that this store returns that one that they got for free and get, get their money back because that would be a business where they lose money. So they need to devalue them somehow if they come back. That's another reason. And um, there is other reasons that are have have something to do with uh, vertical price bending, which was existing until the early or the late sixties in Germany and in other countries. But and this is very important for people to know when we're talking about price bending, there is price bending models in certain countries, like in Germany, where. It is dictated by law that a book, for instance, can't be sold for any other price that has been agreed and dictated by law. It is printed on the book. Such a price bending never existed for records, but it existed something similar. There was contracts, especially until the mid uh, or late 60s, there was contracts between labels and corporations and sales outlets not to not to undergo a certain agreed price so basically the manufacturer or the issuing label dictated the 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 record store at what price they are allowed to sell that record it has been qualified as unlawful by 1969 by german laws and it is not allowed to do this anymore but until then it was allowed so what smaller record stores did was cutting out records to undergo these contracts and then showing um, their records to their distributors or to the label that shipped them to them and say like, look, I cut off an edge. I know it's not nice, but I can't sell it anymore for the price that you're dictating to me. So they were kind of putting the labels under pressure to undervalue the record. That is the fourth reason for cutouts. And there's one uh, cutout there, uh, uh, Angelo, totally right, but I haven't seen it in person. I know they exist, but I haven't seen them in person is, what about the drill hole in the middle and through through even the label? I have heard that, you know, there was uh, uh, like a drill hole through the whole record, um, but I haven't seen it in person. Why? Why hurting the record? 
I think it 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 really depends um, what the approach of the label was to devalue the record, and each and every one had a different approach. There was probably some people going as far as like devaluing the cover is not devaluing the record, so it can still be sold at a price that we don't want. Um, we all know this, like in the seventies. I used to work for music magazines in the nineties, and um, I saw a lot of people. Uh, taking promotional CDs uh, to to secondhand stores, and even when they had like a cutout, they still received okay price. So then labels started really devaluing the CDs as well. I myself worked at a distributor. We used to devalue CDs by a chainsaw, and I'm not kidding you. We would put like 25 CDs on a shelf and then go with a chainsaw over them, just cutting them into the jewel cases and the and the covers, um, and. Uh, it is, of course, it appears to us as crime nowadays, but imagine being one in a warehouse and your boss comes in and is like, look, we have these, whatever, 15,000 Led Zeppelin records in the corner there and we need to get it out because there is a new Small Faces record coming in. Would you please throw them away? And then you're an employee of this company. You go like, can we just do cutouts and then still sell them because I don't want to throw them away and then the boss says yeah but you have to devalue them proper you <laughs> doing that to see this finally <laughs> you have to devalue them proper and there is probably someone who went a bit too far and said i'm going to fucking drill a hole through the cover and the record and it's properly devalued and we're not gonna we're not gonna get more than like two dollars or whatever one dollar back for it it really was a decision of the of the of the corporations and labels and distributors themselves how they did it um and that is the reason on the other hand if it's a 7.5 millimeters hole that they drill through it put it on the thorn it might create some good psychedelic sounds if it plays out of center it really depends on the record though <laughs> Yeah, sometimes uh, I think uh, Michael was somewhere in the comments that he uh, actually bought uh, a record which which had a cutout or drill or something like this for quite a few bucks. I think uh, 450. Uh, and I'm uh, for some records in the same position. They're so super rare. And actually, if I have a choice between take one with the cutout and one without, you know, but still. <laughs> There might be there might be a reason why there is no uh, uh, record without a cutout available on the market because they are so rare that people don't want to get rid of them. And um, I mean the the stage of like deciding I'm going to get rid of this because it's a cutout is so much lower, and that's why it is at all available on the market. Yeah. All right. Um, could you explain what a groove guard is and also what a deep groove is? A groove what? What was the first one? Guard. A groove guard. I have to admit I can't explain because I don't know what it is. So I also checked that because I'm trying to prepare myself as good as I can with all the very complicated wow. words sometimes I'm getting. So as far as I understood, a groove guard was um, somehow done to the label or close to the label, especially for records being used in jukeboxes. So that the part where the music. Ah, um, are we talking about these little like like tooth uh, wheel kind of things that you can see on an injection molding singles? If that is the reason, yeah, um, I can I can certainly explain this. If that is if this is what the what I didn't hear the term before, but 
in the late 70s up to the late 90s, there was a technology called injection molding to uh, manufacture records, which had not much to do with the uh, original record pressing. It was a lot cheaper and easier to do. Um, just to explain this, when I explained this earlier, how a record gets pressed, you have a machine with a stamper top and bottom, you put in the cloth and then the machine closes, presses the records and opens again. Injection molding is different. Injection molding is basically you got the two stampers facing each other with like a millimeter space in between and the compound, the actual vinyl is already liquid and it gets like kind of like injected in between the two stampers and then makes its way through all the grooves and then the machine opens and you take out the record. It can be done a lot faster and it can be done a lot cheaper because the compound is also different. And that, that was what has been done to seven inches to be used in jukeboxes. The quality is drastically inferior to uh, a standard pressed record. Um, but since the injection molding doesn't require to have a label so the machine can open properly. All these records do not contain labels. You might have seen them in bin boxes in some like secondhand stores. They have what we call a tampon print. It is like um, there is just some ink, usually silver or blue, applied to the record itself. It gets rolled on it. And the shape of the record allows for different kind of like what you refer as groove guards some of them have like little tooth wheel tooth wheel shape around the label the label itself looks like debossed um and this i would assume has to do with the technology of the jukebox they were pressed for um we know there's like the the, the bigger ones are volitzer and and, and victrola but they also had different technologies so i think it has something to do with this or maybe even with seven inch changers that we have been used in radio stations especially in the in the uh, early 80s, a couple of radio stations would run their night programs with specially designed seven-inch uh, changers that were running automatically where no one had to put on a record. They just switched it on when they left the studio in the evening uh, with whatever big pile of, uh, of seven inches on it, and then they got changed and played during the night, and sometimes uh, someone looked at it and filled it up. So this could have something to do with it. But it's a good question. I think I'm going to do some research on it. All right. Uh, if you're a jazz lover, because I'm, I'm hearing this all the time uh, concerning jazz records, but I'm sure it's been done on, on other records, is what is a deep groove? I have to I have to give this a pass. And for me, a deep groove is an extraordinary deep groove, as the word would indicate. But um, that is, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see it as black and white as like an, an extensively deep groove there is no adjustment to a cutting machine where you just uh adjust the roof to a groove to be wider than the other one because that would indicate it to be automatically deeper the thing is also that uh there is a strict limitation how deep a groove can be on a lacquer cut because we all know like a lacquer that is being used for cutting is a metal plate that is covered with some kind of compound. And once you get through the compound on the metal blade itself, if you put this into uh, an electro galvanic bath and there is 
the metal part showing through, then you will shorten the metal bath and you burn the lacquer. Um, so um, as far as I know, um, there is nothing like two different ways of how deep a groove can be. So I would do would need to do some research on that. Um, I have to admit. Okay, guys. So there's food for part number three, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, a question I got in: um, What is your opinion about this uh, new hipster uh, thing, which is happening for quite some years? Audiophile. Do you think that's a marketing scheme? Do you think that's um, that really exists? What is, in your opinion, the fuss about audiophile? My opinion to it is it is a word that comes uh, from Greek language and um, it can be translated into uh, loving the hearing. That's what it basically says. Um, and um, there is not much more to it. I mean, I know that the word audiophile has been used to wide extent and applied to certain uh, certain things um, in record pressing. I've seen records in stores containing a sticker saying uh, 180 grams vinyl audiophile pressing and it still makes me laugh because there literally is no difference between mm -hmm. 180 and 140 in terms of audio quality. Um, it still is a, a, a term that we get, we as manufacturers get approached uh, quite regularly. And my usual approach, if someone comes to me is like, I want to have an audiophile pressing, I go back to them and say, like, what do you understand uh, under audiophile? What does it mean to you? Because there are certain steps in manufacturing a record and even in recording a record that could dictate an audiophile approach. Um, but there is no set of rules or norms to it. Um, the only norm that we have uh, in music is hi-fi. Hi-fi um, has a, a norm that is... Um, uh, it, it, it's ISO certified and it dictates a set of rules what is being called hi-fi, high fidelity, and that's it. The hi-fi norm even has been adjusted um, two times in history um, to incorporate um, other, uh, other devices as well. But even the term high-end that has been used is, has no certificate. There is no norm to it. And the same with audiophile. Of course, um, there is certain aspects in manufacturing, cutting, uh, and mastering that would create a better sound um, compared to going a standard way. But that has needs to be discussed with the artist and what they are trying to achieve. To me personally, audiophile would mean starting in recording an album fully analog and not digitally, even though other people might see this differently. Um, for me, audiophile listening is using a well-calibrated turntable, which is in the, at least the mid-price range, getting some good speakers, probably getting to be measure, going to measure your listening room in terms of sound so that you get the most out of it. Um, but the term audiophile would mostly apply to the listener themselves than to the product. I would say from from Angelo and also from Pets Radio 80 jazz fan 
uh, fans mean by deep groove in the label. And uh, Pat's radio says, I thought that the term deep groove was referencing a feature of early jazz pressings that they had a deep ring impression on the label. Could be. You keep us excited history. for part three. I, I know that. <laughs> yes, I know. It. And, I, and I like it so much. All right. Um, are outer covers a good thing or just for the sophisticated record loving hipsters? And I think by outer covers, it's my, my impression. So if, if the one is here, ask the question, you can specify if I'm right. But I think what, what this person means are these outer sleeves. Oh, you mean the plastic sleeves? Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, a widely discussed issue these days. It has, it to me, only as a way of saying a very good sounding. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to me, audiophile is a way of saying a very good sounding record and me being a true carer of good sound. So we both need to meet. Um, there is people who don't even care about a good sounding records, and then for them, it wouldn't be audiophile, but yeah, out of sleeves. So um, as I explained last time, one of the best or probably the best idea to prevent a record from warping during transport is to shrink wrap it. That's why my vote would still go towards shrink wrapping, even though a lot of people don't consider it very sustainable, what I agree. Um, there needs to be some research done of some kind of like compostable material being used as shrink wrap. It is literally not existing yet, um, but there's people working on it. Once we put on uh, another sleeve around it, like a plastic sleeve and sell records without shrink wrapping, we have the choice between different materials. We have PVC sleeves, we have polyethylene sleeves, PE sleeves, uh, which are ones that you just showed, that's PE. Um, PVC are usually a bit more clear. Then we have OPP sleeves, which means orientated polypropylene. That's are the super crystal clear ones, usually with a glue flap. And they all have different effects uh, to su sustainability. For obvious reasons, PVC is the worst, especially since there is at least a, there is at least a theoretical chance that uh, PVC sleeves are gassing out and starting to interact or react chemically with the record in between, especially when you put uh, um, a picture disc straight into a PVC sleeve. If anyone is doing it, listen to me, don't do it, take it out, get a different sleeve because it's going to destroy your picture disc over a certain period of time because there's a chemical reaction to it. That's perfectly normal. Um, also, if you're having like older laminated sleeves uh, around the record, like especially the lamination that has been used in the 70s, sometimes contains the same additives as PVC sleeves, so they can become sticky. That's why my vote would go against PVC sleeves, even if they feel and look kind of classy. PV, uh, PE all the way, what you just showed. Um, it's very good to protect the record, um, especially in the, um, in, uh, on your, on your shelf at home. And I think that doesn't need much explanation because every one of us would know putting a record in something that protects them is always a good thing. But we need to consider the sustainability. It only becomes a sustainable, sustainable product if you get the PE sleeve and it sticks with the record for the lifetime. If you throw it away, it's not sustainable anymore. And it harms the environment much more as this tiny little bit of fraction of shrink wrap that you throw away. How do you store your records? 
do you put the records outside of the cover and then in a sleeve? How do you store them? Um, I store. I usually store my record uh, records as they come from the plant. If they're shrink wrapped, I'm doing the jeans thing, as we call it. Um, I've just opened the side um, to get the record out, and this is how I'm going to store them in my shelf. Um, I have some high valuable records. Um, I usually store them in these OPP sleeves, the one with the glue flap, because it protects them from, from gaining dust. My DJ uh, LPs I'm putting into the PE sleeves that you just showed because it makes them easier to handle and it doesn't scratch them as much if, you're, if they're on the DJ table. There is a few of them where I even leave the covers at home and just take the naked record into a PE sleeve. It really depends on what the record, what a value that record has for me personally. It doesn't mean it needs to be uh, like a monetary value. There's a few records where I just know I could rebuy them for like two euros, but I still treat them like a raw egg because they kind of mean something to me. Uh, so they're they're protected, and it really depends on the purpose. There is a certain amount of records that I own that I play rarely. Um, I don't own any record that I have never played. I'm not one of the people that just buys a record and puts them on the shelf. Sometimes I kind of regret it if I see what value records could have on Discogs. I sometimes think I should have bought like five of them and stored them for 20 years to become rich from it. But I think I missed that exit on the Autobahn now. Um, so um, it really depends on on the purpose. But there, uh, my preferred way of protecting the record is the glue flap OPP sleeve because I think it's 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 the best. All right. Um, concerning protection, great question. I, I have the same. I have these uh, um, from a company, Vinyl Storage Solution. Um, it's a great company. They have these dual uh, uh, sleeves, and I, I love them perfectly. Um, I have, what I do have here in hand is a quadro disc. Mm -hmm. And the question or the myth about this is if you play a quadro disc on a normal stereo system, you ruin the quadro disc. Um, again, a question with an answer that can be brought down to it depends. Is this, this is an RCA pressing I see, so does it have any mention of super vinyl on it? The thing, and it also depends, there's like three different technologies for quadraphonic uh, recordings. Um, two of them are rather emulating it by uh, what we nowadays would call software. Um, you can't you can't see it on the record, but the really true quadraphonic uh, recording, um, as it got established in the 80s, was accompanied by an invention from GVC Japan, which is, on a funny side note, um, the reason for the legacy of, uh, of Japanese pressings. So actually, uh, GVC invented a material that they called super vinyl, and they had to invent it because it's much harder than standard vinyl. And this comes down to the technology of quadraphonic re recording needing to have a steering signal embedded in the record. And this steering signal is recorded and being pressed in the 30 kilohertz range. It's outside what we can hear. It's a high frequency signal that's being pressed in the record. It's embedded in the master. And now, if you press this on a normal record, like a normal vinyl record as we all know, the 30 kilohertz range is very prone to degrading. Um, just a few plays, like whatever 30, 40 plays of the records, 
that signal is going to be so much degraded that it can't be read out anymore by a quadraphonic stylus and it can't be decoded by a quadraphonic uh, amplifier. It wouldn't be that much audible for a lot of people because the record is still being playable. It's just not true quadraphonic anymore. Um, to avoid this problem, um, Super Vinyl got invented by GVC, which is a material that is much harder uh, than standard vinyl. Some of you guys might own a Super Vinyl pressed record. If you hold it against the light, you're going to see it's like a rather brown transparent. Um, while it appears to be perfectly black when it's on the turntable, but if you hold it against the, uh, the light, it's kind of rather transparent. <laughs> the light is 73, so this is not late 80s or something. I think Quadraphonic um, was also brought to, uh, was also done by RCA in the beginning of the 70s. Um, the, the technology got in the, invented in a time, I'm not entirely sure when GVC came on the market with Super Vinyl. I, need, I would need to look it up. Um, it could be, it could have been much earlier than that, but I would doubt that this is a Super Vinyl because um, as not, I'm not, not it's not. So to answer the question, as long as it is not a Super Vinyl pressing, the risk of degrading the, uh, the, the 30 hertz signal by playing it is very high, but it doesn't um, is limited to playing it on a standard turntable. It would degrade on a quadraphonic setup as well, um, just because of the honing effects that the needle applies to to the record. So I would have bought a high-end quadraphonic uh, system, bought a bunch of these uh, records because the system back then was quite expensive, knowing that I only can play this record for a certain amount of time before the enjoyment of it is gone. If this record is truly one that needs a decoding of the steering signal. It could be one of the other two quadraphonic ideas that um, I would. It would be a bit too complicated to uh, to uh, uh, explain how they work. Um, but it can be said that only the one with the 30 hertz signal is true quadraphonic because it tells the amplifier where to put which signal. The others are kind of emulating a quadraphonic sound. Um, so um, I would say uh, the uh, the chances are pretty high that this, what you own there, is one of the... Uh, the what I would call software decoded quadraphonic recording. I never dared to play it because I thought I ruined it. And you need a quadraphonic amplifier. So I, I don't have that. So I, uh, but I've heard if I play this on a normal system, it's still great because the mix is different. Uh, this could be true, yes. All right, so guys, um, we're going to wrap it up. I have marked some questions from the gallery. That was at the beginning, that uh, wrong about the CD. It's just 40 years. I think that was when you said that the uh, vinyl in even a, in a thousand years could be still be read or heard. Um, so that uh, vinyl mania is now saying, well, we don't have experience about that. Um, just to, I think, I think you got, you misunderstood me fully. I'm not saying that the CD will not be readable anymore. That is a discussion that has been going on for long. I mean, I personally own a few CDs that are not readable anymore, where the silver layer kind of like disappears, but this is not what I was referring to. Um, I'm absolutely and entirely sure that there is CDs out there who would still be in perfect readable shape even in a thousand years. What I'm saying is that the technology of reading the CDs, the technology itself is going to disappear. I'm talking about the players. I'm talking about the lasers and the calibrated lasers 
and the players will disappear. When five and a quarter floppy disks came on the market, every computer on the planet had a drive for it. When three and a half inch floppy disks came on the market, every uh, computer had a player for these. Now try to find, if someone gives you a three and a half inch floppy disk nowadays, try to find someone who can still read it. And I'm saying this, this is going to happen to CDs as well, not in the next 50 years maybe, but it requires a certain technology that also requires a certain energy consumption. Do we know if something like electricity in 220 volts and 60 hertz is still going to be existing in a couple of hundred thousand years? This is ev everything like this you wouldn't need for playing a record. You don't need electricity. You don't need a laser. You don't need technology. This is like an analog conservation of sound. And that's why it is eternal. Um, the technology behind it is, is eternal. But I'm not saying that a CD is going to degrade to an extent where it's not readable anymore. You are absolutely right. We don't have enough studies and we don't have enough intel for that. All right. Question from Concert Buddy. Can anything be done on seam splits? The outer sleeve material is weaker, records are heavier and loaded with the inner sleeve opening to the top of the jacket instead of the outer sleeve mouth. Why? Well, um, as an explanation, what is being done uh, with record covers is um, a manufacturer of a certain cardboard or paper gives a certificate for a material being sturdy enough to hold a certain amount of print, a certain amount of ink coverage on it. It doesn't give any certificate how this material reacts if it's being folded and printed. Or in other words, once you print on a cardboard and then you fold it, you're destroying the inner structure of the material and you can't avoid it. Every fold in a record sleeve, especially on an inner sleeve, is destroyed material. And the manufacturer of the paper would go as far and say like, I'm not making my paper for you to fold it 180 degrees. Um, an outer sleeve is usually like a spine sleeve, three millimeters, five millimeters, or a gatefold. So you've got two folds that are 90 degrees, which also destroy the material, but not to an extent like 180 degrees fold on an inner sleeve. So to cut the long story short, the material that is being used as inner sleeve is destroyed already. Um, so it's very easy to apply a seam split to it. Um, and this is something that we won't be able to change. Um, what can be done, and here's a few solutions, is A, we as fans need to put pressure on the labels and the artists not to use printed inner sleeves but polyline inner sleeves. They're the best protection against uh, a seam split. This is, um, I'm running a label on my own and I'm working for a couple of labels and that's, this is what I'm preaching to no extent every day. You want to have some information inside the record, which is perfectly fine. You want to give the lyrics with the record, do an insert. Don't print it on the inner sleeve. Fuck the inner sleeve because it has, it has other disadvantages like print powder that is being applied on the prints to properly dry them remains on the paper, destroys the record. If you want to protect your record, put it in a polyline inner sleeve. And if you want to give extra information, do an insert, throw it in there. This is what we've been preaching to no end. Still, there's a lot of artists out there and a lot of labels who still want to have printed inner sleeves. And there is even fans out there considering 
it as a sign of quality. There is even magazines like Mint magazines, for instance, who mention it specifically if there is a print inner sleeve. I find this rather counterproductive. So um, the best way to avoid seam splits is having um, a sleeve that is not prone for, in, for, for seam splits, what is a polyline inner sleeve. If there is an inner sleeve, you're absolutely right, packing the records, facing the opening of the inner sleeve, same way as the facing of the outer sleeve is the way to go. And I know a few labels who are doing it already. Some of them are kind of worried, and there is actually a reason for being worried about this, if the record's starting to rattle the record comes out and seam splits the shrink wrapping and then it falls out. It can happen. It is perfectly possible. And I can't even give you any intel about what the balance is between the ones that really fall out and the ones that do just some seam splits and everything. Um, so there, there's always a pro and con to each and every idea. What's also being done by a few labels, what I kind of like is they're giving records in a printed, they're throwing the printed inner sleeve in the record, but pack the record itself in a polylined inner sleeve and just throw both inside. Um, so, like I said, um, we one, two minutes. Uh, if you have some questions left from the gallery, you can uh, ask him. And um, I think there will be part three where we deeply discuss uh, the deep groove and the groove guard uh, to, to make sure that this is uh, wrapped up. So guys, uh, yeah, here from Concept Buddy, who has, by the way, a great channel, who's doing also a final community podcast. Um, they, they really appreciate that, Andreas. You had some great explanations. So guys, um, otherwise, Andreas, you're having a festival in the Netherlands, right? That's true, yeah. Um, last weekend of September, going into October, um, it starts on the, um, uh, let me just on the look on the calendar, it starts on the 29th of September and goes to the 1st of October. There's going to be some pre-action on Thursday, the 28th of October. Um, it happens in Harlem in the Netherlands, uh, home base of record industry, one of the biggest and long, most long-going pressing plants on the European continent. Um, it involves several venues there's going to be a conference attached to it there's going to be a record fair uh, there's going to be a label market there's going to be shows and then there's going to be a lot of discussions and everyone who has um, a love for vinyl should be there that's all i can say i do hope you enjoyed ask a business insider to featuring Andreas Koch and myself Nadine from Soul Disco. Stay tuned for other exciting and interesting episodes on the Vinyl Community Podcast.